Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Hey, salespeople. It's my great pleasure to have on the show today, Chris Giles. Chris, welcome. Thank you so much, Jeremy, for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm super excited about the conversation. I think we're going to cover a lot of interesting ground. Chris is the founder of The Factory, which is a company that's focused on employee development, inclusive of recruiting and training. One of the fascinating things about Chris is that he has been running a not-for-profit or a movement for over a decade now called the Make a Difference Movement. So we're going to talk a lot about that and then how that applies both to sales and to life. Before we get into that topic at hand, though, I'd love to get to know Chris a little bit better. Chris, the first question I'm going to ask you is, what is your favorite sales or leadership book of all time? There's two books, actually, if you don't mind. Number one was uh, Richard Branson's book, Losing My Virginity, which I read years and years ago when I was traveling in Europe. And to me, he has been a person that I've followed all the way along. So he's more than a book. He's more of a lifestyle, and I keep a close eye on him. And the second person that I think has really impacted my business career, and it's Jack Welch uh, winning. I I always remember how he felt about the top 10% and how he felt about the lower 10%. And that was something that I've always just managed accordingly, especially in sales, because I think you can manage that way if you you can take your bottom 10% customers and move them up. It's really just the concept of pay attention to your outliers and and you'll be more successful. Among other things, of course, I'm always reading, watching TED Talks, but I I, I remember those books because they just symbolize something to me. Yeah, I I do remember from Jack Welch's book, and the millennials may or may not shockingly know who Jack Welch is. He was the very, very successful longtime CEO of GE, and people are there many Jack Welch devotees. Uh, I remember one thing from the book was it was basically you're either number one or you shouldn't be in the market, which gets very much at focus on the on you know that top ten percent. How do you think that though applies in the world of sales? Like you talked about moving your bottom ten percent up. I don't know that Jack Welch would actually agree with that. I think he'd be more like move your bottom ten percent out. Oh, he did. I'm. I, but I was referencing the employees. I, I believed in the ten percent out on the employee ranking, but I also looked at it with the customers and determined whether those top t- bottom ten percent customers were either hurting us or we could move them up. And if not, we also had to move them out. So I, I saw it in many veins. So I really what it told you is to pay attention to the areas where you're probably spending too much of your time and not getting the results, right? You're just not getting what you deserve out of it. And so get what you deserve out of every situation. Sometimes the bottom 10% don't work in your company and it's better to get them out of there and get them onto a new journey and bring in somebody stronger that can elevate maybe even the top 10%. So I've always philosophized that, but I also think it should be looked at in the customers as well. Yeah. I, by the way, I, I do think there's empathy in moving people to new roles who are not a great fit in your company. At least in the current economy, I don't know that it's always going to be this amazing, but unleashing people to actually be in places where they're happy and fulfilled with the 10 or 12 hours a day that they spend, or you know, whatever it is, 10 hours is called a day that they spend at work, it, it's weirdly empathetic to do that. Especially in sales where it, it's, a, it's a situation where I think it's really important to work and make sure it's not the company's fault, but at some point in time, it becomes obvious it's just the wrong fit and the person is better suited. And I had the pleasure of doing this for a lot of people in my career because it didn't work and I was honest with them. And they went on to great things. And uh, when they went on to great things, they were a little bit frustrated with my initial decision, but it was never done in a duress. It was always done with the right decision. And whether I moved them out of the company or to a different spot, they flourished in some cases and, and found out they were the use of the skills they had. And they had some of those skills, but they were better off over here. So I think it's important to respect the employee. The stronger the employee, the stronger the company. Agreed. And my last comment on this is I worked with a a sales leader who, when she would manage people out of the business, 
on many occasions they actually thanked her, uh, which which is a pretty amazing. Like so, I've always set my bar to if I if in the very unfortunate circumstance that I have to do that, I want to do it in a way that follows her her model. Yeah, it's what I've done a number of times, having owned seven different businesses in my world here. I've had to perform that act for different reasons. And I never did it to hurt the person. And I always recognized there was an opportunity to do so. And so I think it's really important that you're very empathetic to them and recognize that you are a stage in their career. And then if you give them the right guidance information, then hopefully honesty, that that will help them to make better decisions. It's like a parent would do. You know, it's not always good news. And in that particular case, when you're managing something, you have to let them know that it's, it's going to be challenging. But I think if you're fair, fair is good. Yeah. Well, my kids will tell you I'm a pushover of a parent, but let, let's move on to the second question. What's the most interesting or unusual habit that you have? Well, I don't know if it's interesting. I think it's interesting to me, but I love it is I started to play guitar when I was 40 years old. So now I, I quite often uh, will I'm able to, for example, take a, a song and use the, uh, use the song melody to be able to build a song for somebody else. So I send messages to people like that and I kind of like it. It's such an interesting way to express things to people because if you put it in words, it's a little bit awkward. But when you put it to, to music with a guitar, it's wonderful. And so I think it's something I've loved, something I've shared with lots of people. I do it for my sons and my wife and different family members at the holiday seasons. And um, I'd recommend it. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I don't know if you had musical bones in your body. Yeah, I presume you must have because I don't think I had musical bones in my body. I've always wanted to learn to play the banjo, but I that, that is on it's not even on my bucket list anymore. That's on my it's not going to happen list. Well, I've decided that I want to be the number one at leading act in the nursing home. So I've got some time to practice. <laughs> yeah, but I do believe if I was that, you know, it goes back to being a communicator. I think that salespeople are communicators. And I think the best thing I learned about when I play the music and I talk to you, if I did it even this, you know, it just, it just allows a more free flowing communication or conversation. So I'd say to everybody out there who's listening, I, I didn't have any bones in my body that were even mildly musical. I have copied and I have learned off of YouTube and I have learned it just like anything else. And it's not only that, has a, there's another interesting thing about it as well. I think it's important for people out there listening and wondering how do we glean from this? I tell you, learning how to play the guitar has taught me that I can learn anything. And since I learned it at 40, I highly recommend that anybody do it at any point in time. Yeah. Okay. I got to get my growth mindset on as, as opposed to my, fi- my, my fixed mindset and, there you and go. actually give it a try at some point soon. Can we do the concert? Well, awesome. That is, I, I do love learning interesting facts. Learning guitar at 40 is definitely an interesting fact. Well, yeah, let, let's kind of transition into this whole concept of building deep relationships. But I'd love to start by just understanding a little bit more about your Make a Difference movement. How did, how did that come about? So I, I, it is related to business. Um, and it started because in a business partnership I was in um, at a company called Connect Logistics, my business partner and I, Doug, were doing great. Everything was going great with the business. And then there was a situation where Doug's daughter was born. Uh, and, and about a year later, we were, were aware that she had a disease called spinal muscular atrophy. And it's a Lou Gehrig's for children for all intents and purposes. In other words, the muscular structure gets destroyed and the body just becomes deteriorated. And yet the mind is perfect. So it's a real challenging disease. It affects, uh, it's a genetic disease, it affects one in 40 people. And so with that, we decided to fundraise. And there was a number of different things along those uh, course of what, eight to 10 years as we fundraise with, with dinners and golf tournaments, all kinds of different events. And as we raised the money, it, it felt a little bit like we were raising the money because we had to, because we wanted to certainly help. But in the end, we did, donated the, the, the money to a doctor. I believe it was down in Baltimore, to be exact. And he did some research using stem cell research. And only just a few years ago, it was, it was determined by the FDA, as well as by all the associates around the world, that they have a, they have a drug called Spinraza. 
has now been put on the market. It's one of those million-dollar drugs. I'm not familiar with those things, but the drugs, they're just on the market now. It's a million-dollar drug, but it actually can stop the disease and allow a child to live a normal life. And I don't know what I would say to you other than I didn't know it would change the world, but somehow my ability to sell and communicate with those people at those events and make sure we got all the right selling option items and do everything we could to spread the word and, and get in touch with politicians and all of that selling that was so off market, but yet so critical has led to the fact that from now on, if a child is born, they will take spinraz and live a relatively normal life in comparison to what they would have lived before where the deterioration would have been constant and uh, always evolving. So from there, I decided that that was such a wonderful experience that I decided it was so critical that when people, when you make a difference for people, that it actually makes a difference for you just as much as it has, has that repeat effect or pay it forward. And so I created the Make a Difference movement to therefore appreciate all the people that make a difference for you and letting them know. And when you let them know, they of course do other acts and this becomes a series of acts of kindness that just continue to move or, or acts of deliberate assistance to people that need it. So making a difference allows us to be more effective because we know the person believes in us and making a difference allows us to be more effective because we feel good, they feel good, and everybody's able to feel good and feel good allows people to be more effective. Yeah, I mean, so obviously changing the, the life of one child is is enough, right? Like yeah. it, doesn't, it doesn't have to be more, but you've now been operating this for over a decade. How has that scaled from the Chris emceeing events and organizing items for silent auctions? How have you, how have you broadened that out to a larger base? Well, it was, it was never just me. It was always just, I was part of an army, of course, right? There was other people, other families who were facing the same obstacle, but what I think was awesome about it is the, and I think it was back to really back to business and sales. It's the teamwork that came together. It was the way they worked together. It was funny at the beginning of the process that a lot of the monies were going towards helping immediate families, maybe get a wheelchair or for that matter, outfit their home. And there was a decision made by the, the people in charge of the it's families of SMA is what the group is here in Canada. And it's, I think it's similar in the United States. And at some point in time, the families of SMA committee, which is made up all by parents, decided let's put our money towards research. And I think that was probably the most important decision. And from there, it just became more of a politicized thing as well. And really changing our, uh, the way we sold the information generated um, more awareness. And in the end, um, the, the results speak for themselves. Change has happened. It's, it's remarkable. And, but it's all been exactly the same. We scaled it out. We brought in the right people. We improved the messaging. We continue to enhance the selling process. And in the end, we stayed on target. Now life has changed. I imagine a lot of the people who involve themselves in the organization are volunteers. They're not paid to do what they're doing. 100%. Everybody was a volunteer. I guess why I think it parallels so much to business is that's really what this is all about. We're looking to do better things in our world. We're looking to make the, you know, we're looking to leave the world a little bit better. And so I, I think what, what the Make a Difference movement or what the, what the families of SMA did is by virtue of having to stay on target because they had to. It was obvious why they had to. And everybody working together and everybody giving it 100%, not doing the activities, but rather collecting the results, uh, on the, even on the smallest scale, it added up to the greater everybody winning, right? You couldn't just leave your one part out. Everybody had to do their part. That's the thing that I think comes with when it's emotional or real. You know, we want more of that in business, I think. I'm always thinking of, of objections, like how do I relate that to business? In that particular movement, the people who are involved have this incredible intrinsic motivation because they're truly helping to transform the lives of their children or their friends and, and extended families' children. How do you relate that concept to 
you know, the world of say B2B sales or B2B enterprise selling? Well, we make it a part of our, our foundation for all the businesses I've ever owned that for all intents and purposes, we are created specifically to make a difference for our customers. And so our goal, whenever we show up as a company, is to make is to we are supposed to arrive, be able to integrate into their situation, whatever that situation might be. That's what we're offering. And then because we arrived, it will improve. That's our job. The, the three core things for any business situation is either make customers money, you save them money, or you make them better. And it should be a combination, of course. And making a difference means that you know how your, your difference is going to be had. And I think that goes back to what I said earlier about just don't get caught up in the activities, but understand how what you do and how it's going to affect them. Know why you exist and why they need you. And in the end, you're left with a better understanding of how to communicate with them. You're left with a better understanding as to how to gain knowledge about what their needs are and therefore be able to understand what they need and help them understand how the integration is going to help them to make a difference in their world. You know, if the relationships that you build during the the prospect and client lifecycle are so important, I'd love to get some of your wisdom on, on how do you actually build those relationships. I think the most important part, I think that businesses need to reinforce more and more. It goes back to Simon Sinek, of course, the why we exist. It's the, you know, one of the best TED Talks out there, one of the things that people talk about all the time. I created the factory with specific things that are existing and they're continuing to evolve. And those things are meant to make a difference for our customer. But if the company only talks about a part of what I wanted to talk about, then the customer won't be able to link the two together. And I think the biggest thing of what you're supposed to do in a business is to know why you exist and how you're supposed to help them. And for them, it's to know what, uh, what they need and how it's going to help them. What does that mean in in early sales engagement to make a difference for somebody. And here's why I ask you get, I get, we all get messages, either emails or LinkedIn or whatever, where somebody says, Hey, you know, I found your profile and I thought we should connect blah, 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 blah. So the reason I say make a difference is when I, I can't stand when people say, Oh, we're different than somebody else. Or that, that, what do you mean by that? I mean, I'm not comparing you at this point in time. Please tell me what you're going to do for me. As you explained, like, how are you going to change my world and, and in what form or fashion? And so what I, I guess what I'm saying is these, these people that are calling for the first time, maybe engaging for the first time with a customer, I think their level of knowledge of themselves as of what their product is and how that should help that customer based on, you know, maybe basic knowledge of industries, basic knowledge of the person they're calling and how they're going to help, which would have should have come in the training they've received, or for that matter, the practice they're receiving, uh, would therefore allow them to be able to pinpoint to the person how they're expecting to make a specific change because of the reason they're on their phone. And I also would also say that I think that when the customer is being resistant, that the best thing you can probably do in that making a difference form is maybe to understand there's a resistance, a lack of interest, a lack of knowledge, or a lack of time. A lack of interest, what reason, Mr. Customer? I'd like to know. A lack of knowledge, allow me to explain it at some point in time. A lack of time right now, let me be respectful. But I think it's the concept of, I think the customer feels in many ways you're getting on and just doing your cadence or just doing your drills and not actually playing a live game. And I think we should be in a live game format where you should be very dynamic. And you should, if you're going to pick up the phone and call customer A, you should be able to, within that time of calling them, you should have a good idea why you're calling them, what you want to accomplish, and then what your objective is, what their desired outcome is, and be consciously aware if it veers or anything away from there and trying to stay on target. I guess to, to make it a little more concrete, if if someone were to engage you out of the blue, like obviously they want to come in through a referral if possible, but if they were to engage you out of the blue, how would you want them to engage you in a way that leveraged or spoke to, I guess, the philosophy you espouse? 
I'd like to be able to gain exactly what they're going to be able to do for me and why they're calling. If the product is selling a technology, it's going to improve the, the way they operate their podcast. But I would say, I, I understand you podcast, the podcast the process we have lost for a greater t- attention to the detail in terms of whatever the case may be. And I would like to be able to show you how we do it. Please allow me 15 minutes. It's specific to what their specific needs are. From there, they'll either direct me in a different direction, which I can use, or for that matter, they will shut me down. But at least I'll be able to move with at least some position rather than being too ambiguous. Yeah, that, that makes sense. So then, I mean, once, once you're sort of in, and, and I think a subtext of what you just mentioned was true personalization, and we are able to detect more and more what's a machine and what's a person, I feel, uh, although I guess machine learning and AI people would say not so fast. Yeah. But uh, assuming that you sort of got in, you got your foot in the door with that personalized in, engagement, what are some of the things that you uh, think are lesser known ways to build relationships during you know, during the sales cycle? There's no real way to really do sales. It's been done forever. So it's just a question of the tactics you use. And so I'll talk about my tactics and I think that would be helpful. When I call a person, if I feel they're a target, I'll explain to them, I've targeted your company for these reasons. They're similar nature, similar situation, or I felt I could really make a difference in, in, in by this fashion. And, and that's something that I use you know, fairly confidently, not to be a, a negative position, but really to set them up or allow me to understand I've done some pre-work before I even called you. Number two, once I've got them on the phone, I make it perfectly clear to the person, I always have, that my goal and obligation is to help you with these resources for these reasons. So once we're at the end of this, we'll either figure out if we've got something, we'll build a relationship that goes forward. And if not, I'll allow you to go your separate way and I wish you well, but I wanted you to be aware of what we have. So we're a resource in your back pocket. And I think those two things allow the customer to to relax a little bit. And I've I've already said to the customer, you've let me in the door because of some interest. Allow me to stay here for a few minutes. In fact, in my training program, I call it, there's a stage, it's called the address stage, where we address each other's needs and we find out whether we can build that integration or not. And I think too many people rush to provide too much information about their product, rather understanding how it's going to assist the customer and and building a conversation. And and to be honest with you, building a a relationship that is respectful. In the end, people buy, companies pay. Yeah, there's also the people buy on emotion and justify on logic, which I think is also rather similar. (laughs) There's an argument for that. Yeah, I, I, I in particular like the second part. Well, I like both parts actually of your of your process there, but I particularly like the second part. I like most folks have have read and and or experienced every sales training in the world, and they're they're all similarities. But one of my favorite pieces, I guess, that I've learned is the Sandler upfront contract, which is, uh, you know, hey, I just want to take whatever it is five minutes of your time to insert value proposition right from their perspective. And that's that. That's going to cover your agenda. Uh, and then, then there you're going to say, is there anything else you'd like to cover? Assuming it was a call that was set up in advance. But then, most importantly, is the purpose of this ultimately is for you to assess whether or not we're a fit for your needs. And the ball's in in your court. You get to decide whether that's the case or not. And if if it's not the case, you know, we're here for you. But we, I'll leave you be. Yeah, and I, I, you know, one one thing you brought up there, Jeremy, I think I'd like to bring up as well. Going back to let's, this is my first meeting, is what you're implying, right? Which is what a lot of people are struggling with, right? Because it's the seventh meeting that's quite easy. We're friends then. Like I could talk to you now. Next time, we'd be all buddies. But that first meeting is always a little bit uncomfortable. And one of the things I often use, and I heard you say it there, is I use a very strong agenda. And I say strong agenda in that, in the words, it's usually only about four or five items, but in the end. I even put in there, you know, I would put in there factory uh, sales loft integration discussion. In other words, we have a point here. We'll discuss whether this will work or not. 
And, and when they see that agenda, they, they, they feel us moving through that process. And it gives them a sense of control of their own time, which I think is what people are most worried about losing. And I think that makes a difference for them too, because at least you're respectful. And I must be clear, I'm not a salesperson. I'm a business, I build revenue. So if it's not working and this person's not going to get to, I've got to get to another call. I've got to make another call. I still got to come back with the revenue. I don't care about my activities. I just care about my revenue. Yeah. I don't know why my brain kind of went here, but perhaps it was detecting your your Canadian, mild Canadian accent. I'm always trying to figure out what's where there are differences. And we've been talking about relationship building in general. Americans, as a, as a sweeping generalization, are notorious for actually building quick rapport. Like once once you're trusted, which doesn't take that long, you know, they'll they'll tell you a lot of probably details that you may or may not even want to know about their lives and their families. Uh, naively, is that a, also a Canadian trait? Or is it a North American trait or is it really just a, a, an American trait? No, that's an American trait, my friend. That is, that is an American trait. That is that freedom that you guys believe in so much. That je ne sais quoi, we, we call it a je ne sais quoi, just something you have. And I never forget when I went to California, they'd ask me, where are you from? New York? Where are you from? Like immediately, like they wanted to get, they knew I wasn't from California. I'm not from Canada. They're like, oh, cool. Love it. They immediately accept me, but it was an automatic, automatic. And they'd tell me all about themselves. But no, it, it, Canadians are a little bit more guarded, but they're, they're just very respectful. And uh, so it's a bit different. Yeah. On, on, I guess on a related note about international selling as well, the the business dinner used to be a thing here, and that seems to have gone away. And even the business lunch seems to, to have also not completely gone away, but it's it's disappearing fast in the in the states. If you need more time to build rapport and relationship in Canada, does that mean that the the sort of business lunch and dinner and cocktails thing is still a thing, or that's also gone by the wayside? Oh, that's that's pretty much gone. There's rules and regulations against that for the most part, and because it became abused there for a while, right? I was part of the days when you had to spend a certain amount of money per month on expenses. It was crazy. There were liquid lunches and things of this nature they used to do. It it didn't help as much as it did. But I, I think in terms of even that first relationship, you know, you make the first call, you go through the agenda. Uh, we use a product called Vidyard uh, up here to send video messages. So quite often, if we have a positive call, we'll follow up with a Vidyard. If we have a negative call, we'll definitely follow up with a Vidyard and talk about how we're going to go about solving it. And so I think even sometimes when you finish the call, if you respectfully respect the person in some form afterwards, and for that matter, look at the relationship as, I think you'd agree with me, you've been on the earth for a little while. There hasn't been too many people that have been bad to your world, right? But there's been a lot that have been good. Some given lots good, but some even just a little bit good made you feel good. Am I correct? Absolutely. Yeah. So I think that's how we should treat our customers. And that's how we should feel about them. I believe we have an obligation to help them to buy our product, to make a difference for them. So the whole thing should be us serving them and not with our handout to expect something from them, but our handout to help them up. That's just how I feel about it. So if your behavior is like that, in the end, you will stick out as a better salesperson that cares about the person and their environment and their business and their relationships and everything else can affect them. And on top of that, of course, you want them to profiteer, but you also need your company to profiteer. That's how the relationship is formed. Uh, one last line of questioning that this makes uh, sort of leads me to is I was at a, a networking event, and one of the panelists was harping a lot on being sure that you demonstrate both professional value to people and personal value. And he was really harping on the personal value side. I have to say I was a little skeptical of that in the sales process. And I'll give you an example. Like if someone were to say, uh, you know, hey, we're going to sell you this product and it's going to make you 
uh, a superstar so you get a big bonus and get promoted and whatever. I, I would no one's ever said that to me. I'd find it a little weird. But am I missing the mark on what personal value means in the sales process? I guess what he's saying is it probably makes it so it's a better relationship if you actually care about the person as well. I think that would make some sense. I certainly do. I apologize. I do. I always look to make the best relationship, whether I'm buying the product or selling the product with the person who's interacting with me. I want to be positive. I'm very honest with them. I'm very upfront. I, I want them to think of me as a positive person in their world. And therefore, I know my product and I know them. And I, of course, I think caring about that person is probably the forefront of my mind. Yeah, I, and I think that genuineness and authenticity, as you were saying, that most interactions you have with people in the world are positive ones. And I do think most people are genuine and authentic. It's, it's. I, I don't know that you would be successful in sales trying to fake it, trying to trying to fake that authenticity. How can people get to know more about you or the Make a Difference movement or Factory? It's been a real pleasure, and I'd like to say that I think it's fantastic what you're doing, Jeremy, to help build the strength of people by just asking wonderful questions and inquiring about sales. So to get a hold of me, I'm Chris Giles, and I would be uh, connectable at uh, cgiles at thefactory.com, spelled T-H-E-F-A-K-T-O-R-I.com, or also you can get a hold of us at thefactory.com. There's lots of ways to contact us there. Once again... I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Laura Hall is our executive producer. Our artwork is by Greg Klingshern. This episode was edited by Peter Lopinto. Subscribe to us on your favorite app to learn more immediately actionable best practices from our awesome guests. Thanks for listening to the Hey Salespeople podcast.